0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: I mean, the idea of like turning on my, every now and then I'm watching a TV show these days and I'm like, I used to watch Welcome Back, Cotter on this thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. <And now> you <laughs> or look you know, at, like the work Robin Laurie Petrie, and now I'm watching like Billy Porter having sex with some guy, and I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, it's it's uh, it's fucking amazing. It's a great time for that medium, mm-hmm. you know. But um, uh, well, I mean, and
0: to use and manipulate it, right? Yeah, because that's the whole thing. It's like it just it's always been here. Yeah,
1: it, it's just never. It's just,
0: we've never utilized it in the way that we are now.
1: Exactly. And to tell those kind of, uh, uh, you know, but just, it was so stilted. I mean, there's great TV. We all grew up on it, but it yeah. was just so narrow in its focus. And it's just so much fun watching it blow up, you know? And I was like, Ryan Murphy's been part. I mean, the fact that there was a, I don't know which is more mind boggling that your show is, is, is on the air or the fact that somebody did a, a mini series about Betty Davis, you know, uh, <laughs> it's like, what the, so? you know, about the making of, uh, Oh, um, whatever happened to baby Baby Jane, Jane. the idea that someday that would be a mini, you know, I'm watching roots as a kid. You're going, yeah, they're going to do one of these about whatever happened to baby Jane someday. (laughs) (laughs) That's insane. What? Um, but, uh, anyway, um, uh, I think we, have we been, oh, okay. I don't know. We do this. We steal, we steal stuff. We try to get people to confess to crimes. (laughs) Um, uh, by the way, first of all, I need to say to, to our listeners, um, uh, we've had a uh, Joe. Joe is not with us this week. Um, some work stuff has come up at the last minute, and uh, he's off dealing with that. But he'll he'll be back. Um, he sends his love and his apologies to you and to our guest. But uh, um, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be going solo this week without my trusty side. I understand Joe knows. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the show. Joe yeah. is like you've heard yet. Yeah, Joe yes. knows everything. There's that that you know if you're sitting here trying to go like God damn it who was the key grip on that uh, that 1943 William Demarest movie and he knows who it he's
0: was. he's a rolodex of information he's seen
1: everything and he and he's 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 got you know incisive critiques of everything it's it's a little intimidating. This is the movies that made me with your hosts Josh Olson and Joe Dante.
0: Category is live, work,
1: We're here this week. I'm really excited. One of the really cool things about doing this show, at least for me, I, I hope it translates to the listeners, is I get to, like, focus on stuff I like. I get to do things like uh we we recently, you know, I, I really do. There's a couple of TV shows on right now that I absolutely love. Um one of them makes perfect sense. Uh if you know me and you know my work, which is Barry. Um mm. dark crime okay. stuff. Very funny, but it's it's so no one who knows me for 30 seconds is surprised I love Barry. My other favorite show on TV is is Pose. Um, I absolutely freaking love it. My uh, uh I'm I'm happily married. Part of the one of the ways you stay happily married is you you give each other chances on things that you wouldn't normally. And uh, when the show premiered, my wife Nancy goes, "Oh, I want to check this out." And she goes, "You're not going to want to watch this, are you?" And I'm like, "God damn it! Of course, yeah, you know, honey, I'll give it a shot." And <laughs> she does that with me all the time, except for the occasional horror film. She's not big on horror. And so I sat down to watch the first five or ten minutes of Pose, and and I thought, you know, I'm 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 sure it'll be lovely, and I'll I'll you know do my duty misery and then she can go watch the rest of the series i can't remember i'll be completely honest i i remember um the first five minutes of the show when they're breaking into a gallery mm-hmm. there was something about it and i was like oh i don't know about this and within 15 minutes i was like oh i'm, I'm definitely watching another one and <laughs> uh i'm now at the tail end i've now finished the second season um it's an amazing, amazing program. We're here with the show's creator, Stephen Kennells. Um, I am so happy that you're here. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about the movies that inspired you yeah, Uh in, in your journey. And I just, but, but the joy of being able to sit across from people who are doing work that I love and tell them, I love your work. Let's talk about movies is just, is so much fun. Um, but, uh, and as you know, Stephen, if you've heard the show, we don't, you know, we're not going to do the interview you've done a million times that you're probably tired of, but, but, um, uh, I, I would love you for a minute or two to kind of do a little recap for some of our listeners who might, you know, not have immediately leapt into easily one of the best shows on the air. Um, you were trying, I mean, one of the things I love is you spent a long time trying to sell this show. Mm-hmm. Um, how many, how many years and how many places did you go with it? And, and what, I mean, I've, I've gone out with stuff that, um, did did not seem. I mean, I, I can I can hear all the objections you you must have gotten, and I've gone out with stuff that seemed, you know, more more obvious, I guess, to the kind of mindset you're trying to sell to, and and uh, dealt with dealt with that rejection, and it's tough, and it's like you go, yeah, but it's a commercial idea, but I mean, what what were you like? Obviously, you're passionate about this. What what kept you going through those tough years before you just nailed this thing? What was the you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, my, my
0: go-to response in the past year has been, I think that that resilience just comes from being a queer person of color. You know, I grew up in the Bronx in the 80s in the midst of crack and AIDS epidemics right. in housing projects. And I think, you know, growing up in a family where that rich history you know, of being black and being Puerto Rican and, and knowing that my forebears had to walk, in some cases, hundreds of miles, sometimes with no shoes at all, you know, just so that I could have the opportunity to create film and television. I just didn't ever feel like I had the, the right um, or the luxury to sit back and say, I'm tired, I can't do this anymore, you know, and I'm also hardheaded. You know and that's the truth. Like I moved to l a with a very specific goal and a dream to to tell stories and specifically to tell stories that we haven't ever seen before. Um, and so it's you know, my feeling every time I heard no was just work harder. Right. Work harder, try harder. You know, you have to persist. The truth is, I don't know that prior to meeting Sherry Marsh, who's one of our executive producers, yes. who introduced me to Ryan Murphy. Um, and, and you to me. Yes. Um, Sherry is, is incredible. And I think that before I met her and had an advocate in her and a, and a believer in, in my voice in her, um, you know, my feeling was who knows, you know, that I, in my mind, Pose was going to be my madman. Right. You know? Yeah. Just like Matthew Weiner. Like it, it took him a really long time like a
1: and decade with that script, you know, and it, yeah. and it
0: sat in his desk, but he believed in it. And at a certain point when it was yeah. ready, the you know, he introduced it to the world and it was a, a massive hit. And I th- I think in my mind, I thought, well, it's fine. I'm going to have to go through the, you know, process and, right. and pay my dues. And at a certain point when I have clout in this industry,
1: that'll be the thing that I'll, I'll dust off. Yeah. And it's and and I'm so glad you did. And, and it's funny when when you say that, it's like you know, yeah. I mean, compared to, uh, you know, uh, actual struggles in the world, running around trying to sell a TV show doesn't seem like <laughs> yeah. comparatively speaking. Comparatively. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things I love uh, about the show too is is when we were talking before the show, and and we're we're definitely on very much the same page politically, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But aside from the sort of sociopolitical appeal of the show, I, I gotta say. As a straight white man living in America, I, if I want to see my story, I turn on a TV, you know, Mm -hmm. I open a book. It's so fucking easy for me to see myself represented in all my glory, you know, and I've got an entire room full of movies, 90% of which are, you know, about, and at a certain point, and I've written that stuff, you know, and it's like, at a certain point, there's just this, you know, set aside the politics of it, set aside, you know, any kind of statement of it, it's just fucking boring. There are other lives to live. And one of the things that I love about film and TV that I always have, and and, and fiction and narrative arts, and it seems people are slowly coming around to getting this on a more mainstream level, Mm -hmm. is you don't have to see yourself physically represented to be able to identify with a character. And as proof of that is the fact that everybody who's not a straight white man has been enjoying movies about us for, uh, you know, 100 years and just put me in the shoes of somebody who's not me and take me on an interesting journey and I'm happy. And that's one of the things you do with that show. Like, it, it's amazing. And, and sort of in the first season, there was a kind of nod. um, you know, there were there were a couple of white characters, you had know, the great Kate Mara, who I absolutely mm-hmm. love. She's fantastic. Uh, I, I actually cast her in a movie years ago that, that unfortunately didn't get made, but she's she's unreal. And I love her and I loved I love watching the two of them, but it was kind of like I, I these someone tried to hook me in, and I'm like, I'm kind of waiting to get through with them so we can get into the meat of the show.
0: Well, can I tell you though, yeah. I,
1: I appreciate
0: that you are clearly enlightened and because I, I think that you are in the minority in terms of and this isn't even specific to to straight white men. I think yeah. just in general that um, I don't know that that many people are that curious about the world, right? And about the other. And you're seeing that as you right. made reference to politically right now. You know, I think that there's so much discord um, and the discourse that we all are engaged in um, at this current moment isn't as... Um, as nuanced as I would like it to be, because I think we just aren't taking a beat to employ empathy, you know, and to really think about how other people live. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. The other thing is I want to throw another identity on top of everything okay. you already said, which is aside from being a straight white male, you're also cisgendered. cisgendered yes, and I yes. think that that also, you know, for for me as a, as a queer Afro-Latin person, um, it's very easy for me to navigate the world. Um, putting those identities up front and center because obviously those are the ones that I think most people seem to be the most interested in. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that I do have an identity that privileges me. Well, two, one is male and one is cisgender. Um, And so when thinking about content and thinking about stories of the other from my own perspective and my privileges, you know, that is really where Pose was born, you know, Mm -hmm. because I, I had to Really have an honest conversation with myself, which is, yes, you are coming from these two marginalized identities, but you also have a lot of privilege, you know, and you have got to check yourself on that.
1: That that always fascinates me. How I mean, we're getting we'll get we'll get into the the the, the point of the show in a minute, but but I've, I'm fascinated by that stuff because for whatever reason, it's it's been, you know, as somebody who sort of lives outside those concerns, how do I put this, you know. Those are issues that I can choose if I not, if I choose, I can choose not to be affected. Well, by. that's, well, what you're speaking and,
0: to is privilege. Right.
1: No, no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, uh, it's, it's once you open the door to that, uh, it does, you know, and it, which is essential. It, it's, you know, it's like, yeah, you just pointed out. I, I left something out. I'm like, of course I did. I'm, I'm you know, we're all working at this. Right. But what always fascinates me is when people who are not privileged, who are dealing with, you know, various um, identities that aren't privileged, are are that you can do that is really interesting to me because you have to, um, you know, there are impositions made on you because of your identity by this culture that could easily preclude you noticing that there are people who are even less privileged than you are, and somehow that that always really impresses me. Um, um, I can
0: tell you why though. Yeah, which is. Uh, One is that my mom is an educator and two is I worked in higher education um, as both a paraprofessional and then a professional for nine years. Okay, And so I spent my time as a college administrator engaged in conversations and in in critical discourse with students, faculty, staff, parents um, around identity, you know, sexual orientation, race, class um, you know, gender identity and expression. So I, I bring all of that Mm -hmm. with me to my practice as a storyteller.
1: Right. No, it's, I, yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I come from that. My mother was a teacher as well, college professor, Mm -hmm. kind of grew up around that. So, um, I don't know. I just read, there there was, I read something a little while ago. Questlove had a, uh, was talking in an interview. I guess he had had an experience where he was in the, um, apartment building he lives in and he got into his elevator Mm -hmm. and there was a, a small white woman in the elevator who sort of shrunk back. And he talked about, first he talked about, you know, what that feels like and then all the stuff he does to sort of make himself smaller around certain people. What really, one of the things he said that amazed me, because it's like, I'm the I'm not going to go out and go, this is my burden to bear. I'm fine. But he said, I also understand that it isn't just a black thing. I'm really large and that must be something that everybody who's large has to deal with. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, somebody gets it. You know, it's (laughs) like every time I get in an elevator, we all have these tricks we do. I'm really, if you, you can't see us. I'm six, five, I'm large. I, you make yourself small around people. The fact that he could be in that situation, having all that come down on him and still have a thought for other people who are suffering this, this suffering, you know, that have this other issue. It, it's interesting to me. It's, yeah. it, it's, no, uh, it's fascinating. But your show, uh, I'm doing a terrible job of enunciating all this, but one of the things I love about your show is it sort of brings all this stuff to the forefront and then, and then throws it out. It's like, you're living these people's lives with them and you're seeing, you do a beautiful job of, of showing how their identity is front and center in their lives in a natural way and how the consequences of their identity is as well in the context of, and now we're going to get to your list, um, of a family show. Cause Mm -hmm. it really is a show about family. Uh, and I think, um, and maybe one of the reasons I click so hard with it is I come from what you call a blended family these days or wide and spread out and steps and halves and all kinds of, Um, you know, adopted and this and that and the other thing. And it's, it's, you know, I I constantly find myself looking at other people's families going, yeah, yours is all right. Mine's amazing. (laughs) And, and there's a quality because the, at the heart of Pose is this created family. And that notion that um, family really is something you make as much of, you know, if not more than, than what you were given. And I love that. And when we talk beforehand about the kind of stuff you want to talk about, you want to talk about movies that relate to family, sort of family dramas that mm-hmm. have moved you. Um, so, yeah, do you want to just kind of start? I don't know. Do you want to start at the bottom and work your way up to your most sure. favorite favorite? Or? Oh, that's so interesting because I was, I part them in order of when I actually saw that. Oh, great. Even better. Even better. Oh, by the way, one thing. I just wanted to, sorry, I just had written that a couple of notes. I wanted to give, uh, I don't know who wrote this episode, but there was, uh, one line recently, there was a Ninja 3 The Domination reference on an episode recently, which <laughs> uh-huh. and it was right after we had first started talking about coming on the show. And I was like, yes, um, amazing film. Have that, you actually seen that movie? So I so I,
0: I wrote that episode. <laughs> Excellent. But that line was suggested by uh, Brad Falchuk. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. have have you seen ninja three the domination i've not cannot recommend
0: it highly enough yeah. uh, <laughs> but he was passionate about it and so i was like let's put it in okay <laughs> it's Flashdance with a ninja
1: and then just um uh i mean there's so many great people on the show but uh i recently we watched the episode where um billy porter sings the man who got away to a room full of AIDS patients yeah, and yeah. it was just one yeah, of the most cool. amazing things i've seen on tv and i just you have to know how i mean your cast is incredible but holy shit billy porter billy porter is a supernova and and getting and i read an interview with him recently talking about the the fact that he's got this chance now i mean i love that we live in a world where billy porter gets to be a leading man without covering up who he is, mm-hmm. is is just amazing. You know, if this were the 60s, he'd have to be playing, you know, the button-down teacher at a... If he was working at all. If he was working at all. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly, yes. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. So let's talk about family films. Yeah, however you, whatever Absolutely. Well,
0: I just want to say something just to address a point that you, that sure. you were discussing earlier, which yes. is I think what's so important to go back to what you were saying about your identities as a straight white cis man, which is I think oftentimes... What I'm hearing as someone who's now working in, in Hollywood, in air quotes, um, is that, uh, you know, folks from historically marginalized identities, you know, so people of color, LGBTQ people, women, we're saying we want to see more of our stories told. And somehow that gets processed as we want to see less stories about white folks or oh. straight folks or men. and I, And it's like, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we don't want you to be telling your story. What we're saying is just that we want to see more of our stories yeah. told. So I think there's a difference between equity and equality. Yes. And somehow I think like that gets
1: missed in well, the it's conversation. it's not a zero-sum game. At all. I mean, I you know, the, the mood I'm in right now, if you told me, you know, we had to stop telling stories about me for a couple of years, I'd be like, yeah, please, I'm done. But yeah. the notion that somehow like – uh, what there's 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 a show about some square jawed white private eye that isn't getting made because Pose is getting made. That's just not the truth at all. I mean, at all. And anyway I mean, you're it, that that argument doesn't make sense back in the world where there were only three networks, you know. Now, and. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just there's so much freaking content, the notion that somebody is getting screwed, it's that's absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And
0: yeah. I, I bring that up because I think you know when I came up with my list of like ten family dramas that have deeply impacted me and that I know have influenced who I am now as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. These stories are not particularly queer. Right. um, And many of them are centering white families. And so I think that might be surprising to some folks, you know, but the reality is I think story is story. And, you know, and if you're telling a story that leans into the universal truth, which hopefully all stories are, um, you know, you're going to find the things that are the most salient for you and you're going to hold
1: that. But I think that's that's the point I was struggling to make earlier was that, you know, the, the argument that uh, you don't need to constantly throw in, you know, Kevin Costner is the classic, you know, you, you don't need to throw in that guy into a story of a different culture to suck us into it. And the proof is the fact that I'm sitting here with you right now and you're talking about 10 family movies that are mostly about people who don't look like you. Right. And yet you're still relating to them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. that's, that's, and I, I, ultimately that is where, that's where I get all misty eyed about what we do because it's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think you can make a TV show or a movie or a song or a book that can change somebody overnight, but you can eat away at them with with the empathy that the medium imposes. Absolutely. Um, You know, if I can identify with Superman, I can identify with anyone because he's completely alien. (laughs) And if you can put me in his shoes, you can I'm 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 there. And it's like, and if you can't, it's 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 more of a function of uh, I think the failure of the storytelling than anything else. It's, mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry yeah. enough. Yes, no.
0: go. What's your <laughs> so my number one film, number one on this list of ten, um, released in 1985, is The Color Purple. Okay. Yeah, directed by Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg.
1: Yeah, speaking of yeah, that's that's an interesting one to begin with. Yeah, um, and
0: it's it's on the it's on my list, and it's I would say probably the single most important family drama for me really? um my so i was fortunate to to grow up with parents who fortunate's an odd word but i you know my parents were very young when they had me they were in their early 20s um, and my dad who was a true my parents grew up in harlem and my dad was a true lover and still is a true lover of all film and television um and you know, just consumes it at a voracious rate. And the very first film I ever remember seeing in the theater, um, which didn't make it on this list because it's not a family drama, but um, I also love is Terminator. So that's the first movie I remember seeing in a theater. In the
1: theater? Were you? Were you not? We were you a kid. I was, he was. like four. I was like four, four years
0: old. Four, one, five. <laughs> yeah, and I remember being horrified by by Arnold and. There's that scene when he rips the skin off of his his arm. arm. And my dad was like, he's like Megatron. He's a a Transformer. And I was like, I'm so scared. Um, But the first movie that I remember seeing in the theater where there was catharsis is The Color Purple. And it was five going on six. Oh, wow. My mother had just read um, Alice Walker's Walker's book. And... You know, my parents were, were, despite the fact that they were really young um, and, you know, there's a whole other conversation we could have about parenting skills, but my parents were really great about we'd watch a film or something, some content, you know, it was on television and then have a conversation about it so that I was hyper aware at an early age that there were people responsible for crafting the content that we were consuming. Um, I didn't necessarily know like who was responsible for making it i just knew that that it wasn't real even if it felt real to me yeah um but the color purple was the first time that i saw people on screen specifically on the big screen who looked like members of my own family
1: oh wow okay
0: and so that in itself was you know really life-changing for me as a you know, five and six-year-old. Yeah. And then just that feeling at the end, because the whole film is this really beautiful, sprawling story about Seeley, played by Whoopi Goldberg, who, you know, is is um, just trying to exist, you know? Like, she isn't thriving. She right. is surviving, yeah. which that story feels felt very, very, very familiar to me as a boy growing up in sure. housing projects and, you know, having family members who were contending with The crack epidemic of the uh, you know of that era, and so anyway, all that to say that I think emotionally I was very wrapped up in her story, and can and still am. You know, five. That's that's interesting
1: because I I can relate completely to, you know, my father took me to wildly inappropriate movies I was a kid, and it's like if I'd been mm -hmm. four when Terminator came out, he would have taken me to Terminator, you know. But (laughs) um, and they had an effect in a way that stuff will. But but I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of being five and being able to key into. Something that's more emotionally sophisticated. I'm like, I don't, I, I think I, when I was that age, I would find movies like that. Incredibly boring. Uh, oh, no, so that's, I loved that's it. Fascinating. I think it's that, you know, my, because truth be told,
0: by this point, my dad was out of the house. Um, I think because my parents had split up for about six or seven years. And so it was just my mom and I at that point. Um, and one of my biggest fears as a little boy was that what would ever happen if God forbid something happened to mommy, you know, okay. if she went to jail, if she was killed, if, you know, whatever, you know, she had to go away for work and couldn't take me with her, you know, and, and the reality is like, my mom is one of five. So I had uncles and and aunts and my grandmothers and, and I, we saw them fairly regularly, but I was, re- as my mother jokes around, like, you know, they never really cut the umbilical cord. Like we were very, very, very close. Um, and so that was a huge fear and anxiety of mine. And I think that separation, I mean, they're sisters, but, you know, Celia and Nettie's separation in that film was one that I just immediately from the right. first 15, 20 minutes of the film- Just keyed into? I was just cl- I completely keyed into that.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. And and then the the realization too, the- um, I remember once years ago, uh, it's, it's a lovely film. I just, um, um, Crunchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I wanted mm. to see it. And, and I had been such a fan of the kind of the movies that it was paying homage to, that I'd seen a lot of the stuff that was new to, you know, cause obviously it had this great mainstream audience cause of Ang Lee. And I remember having this moment of kind of just awful, awful cynicism where I'm just kind of sitting there going, eh, mm. it's fine. I've seen it before. And I, I turned around and looked behind me and there was this like 11 year old Asian girl whose eyes were just popping out of her Mm. head and it just, it really hit me. I mean, I was aware of this stuff, but there was just something visceral about, it It was like, I don't, and who knows what, but she just had this look and I thought, Jesus, I'm sitting here being the cynical asshole and there's a distinct possibility this is the first time this little girl has seen an incredibly powerful Asian woman on screen Mm -hmm. that she doesn't have to, you know, morph herself into identifying with. And um, I was like, what an asshole. And I just enjoyed the rest of the film. After that, I was like, "I'm a dick," but but yeah, I can't imagine what that what that but that's what you're speaking to is the same experience that
0: little girls had when Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel were released. It's the experience that little black boys and girls, frankly, had seeing uh, Black Panther. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just oh my god, I now
1: can finally see myself. Yeah, no, that stuff is is that that is absolutely a a, a huge upside to that stuff. I, I got very cynical about the Wonder Woman thing because there was a someone was doing a, a GoFundMe to take a lot of young inner city uh, girls to go see the movie who mm. wouldn't be able to afford to otherwise. Which I'm like, so far so good. I'm I'm great with that. I'm about to you know sign up for twenty bucks or something, and then I read that the Air Force has spent more, has given more millions and millions of dollars of free stuff to this movie than any movie they've ever done before because hmm. they see it as a recruiting tool for young girls. And now I'm like, uh, it's mm. that, yeah. you know, which, which. <laughs>
0: How we manipulating?
1: It yeah, like, it's yeah. like, there's the good side, there's uh, you know. um But, uh, but yeah, no, obviously, representation is, is amazing. It's really interesting to watching the um, responses to that stuff from people who are threatened by it, like the notion that, you know if if one Marvel movie isn't about you know the, how you're threatened by the existence of a superhero movie is beyond me. And yeah it it's it's, you know, or the um the people who are upset this, here we'll get some hate mail there. yeah people who are upset about like women being ghostbusters. It's just I don't even understand that. I understand, I guess, it's like you don't want to see it. Don't go see it. But, yeah, it's exactly. like there's this notion that somehow your existence is being threatened by. This movie is so bizarre.
0: Well, yeah. And I mean, the critique is, that's always lobbed, it seems, is it has to do with being politically correct. Or we're in this time when, you know, why do we have to constantly change the, you know, the gender <laughs> or the race of these
1: characters? And it's like. Because honestly, by the way, yeah, you want, you want some hope in the world? Because it's profitable. Because yeah. we're starting to recognize that other people see movies and more of them will come if we may. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, the only place I would say where I have critiqued to that, this is taking yeah. us aside from the list, but is, you know, if we're like going back specifically to like having women as, as Ghostbusters, like yeah. I think that's great. I don't have a problem with it. My only critique would be can we get some new original
1: stories? Well, then there's you know? that, but they, that's where all these things become complicated. Like yeah, it's it's yeah for sure. Yes, I would much rather see a new franchise about or a new franchise, a new movie, yeah. about some interesting women and then yes, than Ghostbusters thirty seven. But right, yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, um, which is why I'm not doing the all straight, white, cisgender gender, male version of Pose. It's, I'm to do it. A... Which, I mean, if you wanted to. <laughs> I don't even know by what that all would look means, like. What would that Go with like? God. <laughs> uh, the category is, I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes, so um, what's, what's next? So my, so
0: I post The Color Purple, yes. I then found myself obsessed with, Everything and anything that was ever nominated for an Oscar. Okay. Um,
1: uh, we well, were five.
0: Yeah, and was like, you know, I want to see all of the greats, you know, because for me, the barometer of success and great was winning an Academy Award.
1: How How long did it take you to realize the, uh...
0: <laughs> that? Like two days ago. <laughs>
1: oh, really? When we started this Emmy campaigning. Um, no, I mean, how How long did it take you to realize that that uh, um, not every Best Picture winner is. Uh... <laughs> Oh yeah, no. no. Great well, I was being facetious, but yeah, yeah no. I mean,
0: pretty fast. Um, but I found myself going back a couple years, and and by the age of, I'm gonna say by eight, eight or nine. Um, you know, one of my favorite things was going to the library and renting VHS tapes, and you know, it wasn't like we had a plethora of options in terms of cable television. But I don't even think we had HBO as a boy at that point, but just watching the classics or at least what I thought were classics at that point. Um, and so the next film on my list that I watched that was really important and instrumental in terms of, or that really impacted me as a storyteller is Ordinary People. Oh yeah. Yeah. From 1980.
1: You know, it's, um, it's a kind of drama I don't normally go for, but there's Mm. such a, a powerful edge to that movie. Um, you know, it's it's not. Uh, I don't know. There, there's a ten, there's there's a fear. I think, and it's probably a bit of a cliche, but a lot of these films can fall into a kind of TV movie sort of thing. But but that movie is tough. It's 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 hard. Um, yeah.
0: I'm, well, and I will say because I think the my list in general these aren't feel good films. Um, and so I think it's interesting because if you compare it to my work, especially if you watch Pose, which you know there's they're living in this very bleak period in New York City, but there's a lot of love and a lot of heart to these characters and to the world that that the characters of Pose inhabit, which is very different from the films on the list that I have. The reality is, I think for me as a young boy, I grew up in what I would now say was a like functionally dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that isn't a pejorative. Like that's not a critique. It's just it's just the truth. That's it's what called, it was. It's you know, it's just thing. being a person. Being I a think human. it's the nature of family too, isn't yeah. it? That, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, and so I think I you know I was really intrigued by and continue to be really fascinated by stories of loss mm-hmm. um, and resilience, um, retribution. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm fascinated with those as themes connected right. to family. Um, which is reflective of the films that I'm attracted to. I think Ordinary People was one of those films that um, I think typically in a family drama, especially if there's loss, it's always a parent. It's mm-hmm. usually parental loss, mm-hmm. and you see that through and through with like Disney films, right? Every
1: Spielberg movie is the, or, or every Spielberg a film. parent, yeah. And For
0: so film. this was the first time that I saw a story where, you know, like I as the child. And the person who's now missing, mm-hmm. you know? And how does that affect the way that this family is now navigating the world? And I found it fascinating because, you know, up until that point, I think I was like eight or nine when I started Ordinary People for the first time, but most stories about families, it's the mom who has it all together. Right. And yeah. here you have Mary Tyler Moore playing this mother who has fallen apart yeah. because of the death of her son. And, and, and doesn't recover at all yeah you know and if anything at the end of the film she's the person who who leaves yeah you know and leaves her her son and her husband to to pick up the pieces I wondered,
1: do, and, do you I, I was just thinking I, I was just flashing on the scene with um uh we're not going to give away details of the show people haven't seen it but but there's a, there's a lovely scene where two characters have been on the outs for a while um, um blanca and uh Tell, billy porter's character have have had a huge falling out and it's it's a it's a Powerful scene because they're falling out over something real, and you understand both sides, and you understand why they have to go away from each other. But there's a scene where they reconnect that is so lovely. And and it, but it, there's something about an embattled community that I think, in some way, would would you agree that almost here's an upside sort of forces those reconnections in a way that if you're dealing with sort of the masters of the universe as you are in ordinary people. There's no outside force working against them that kind of pushes them together. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great observation.
1: Because like, there's there's nothing there's nothing for them to push against except their own falling out and their own failures in ordinary people. There's not some kind of outside force trying to destroy them that forces them to have to make community with themselves.
0: What you're bringing up is is a really odd. This may seem like a tangent, but I just rewatched watched um, District 9. Oh, yeah. Neil Blomkamp's film. Yeah. And, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations because I've been in sort of like story generating mode and thinking about a new project. And um, I've been really engaged in and thinking a lot about displacement mm-hmm. connected to gentrification. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're talking, what you're speaking to is this notion of um, that it's whoever the folks that are the ones who have been displaced, who are being pushed to the margins, they're the, the forgotten, right. frankly, you know, left behind. And so you all have to figure out your own stuff on yeah. your own yeah. without any resources, without any, you know, care, you'll, you do that. And I think I hadn't really thought of that scene in that way until this moment but that's oh,
1: a great observation yeah. um yeah but i ordinary people's an amazing film and, and i mean redford I, is such an interesting filmmaker mm-hmm. there's some misses in there i think but uh I don't know, are you a quiz show fan I, I, yeah i haven't seen it in a really long time it's, it's an amazing film and at the end, it's one of those things that you think is going one way and it could be a pretty solid entertaining movie and then it just takes this turn into yeah. kind of much more thoughtful and challenging stuff it's uh
0: the thing I remember about it that it was long.
1: <laughs> well, it's long,
0: yeah. <laughs> I remember that it was really long.
1: It, it is definitely long, but, but. worth going back to. But yeah, Ordinary People's wonderful.
0: But I love Ordinary People. And, and that moment with um, Mary Tyler Moore out on the golf course. Yeah. When she yeah. screams, like, I don't yeah. know what you want anymore. It's just, oh, God. Like, there are certain scenes. I will be honest. Like, I'm one of those people who really, like, I'm a sucker for a great performance. Sure. And I will, <clears throat> when I'm procrastinating will live on YouTube and find those, clips of great scenes? Just finding clips of scenes that I love, performances <laughs> that I love. And that scene between her and Donald Glover... Uh, Donald Sutherland. 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 Donald Glover, Jesus. <laughs> Rewind and take that back. Um, that scene between Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland uh, yeah. is one of my favorites.
1: I wanted to, in, in any question, but, but you were probably not at that age. That's probably your first exposure to Mary Tyler Moore, I'm guessing. No, I was oh, familiar you, oh, with well, the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So saying, okay. Cause I'm wondering like what imagine that's your first exposure to her and then you come to all of her work afterwards. Cause that was such a startling change of pace for her.
0: The thing about Mary well, what was so fascinating to me, and I, I think it's it it definitely has impacted how I navigate this business now as a producer. Mm-hmm. Um is, you know, seeing the glimmers of what a performer can offer you yeah like i love when you get a casting choice that seems completely out of the box you're like what like i remember like all of the this is maybe a a strange choice because you know i think he's he was a fantastic actor but like i remember how upset people were when heath ledger was announced as the joker no, you know and everyone there was like People were pissed yeah. about that choice, you know, and it's like, why well, you want an Oscar for it? Like, you look, you watch that film, you're like, there's no Heath Ledger anywhere in that yeah. performance, yeah. and that was like post Brokeback. Yep, you know, and people were still pissed. And anyway, I, I say all that to say that I think Mary Tyler Moore is one of those performers. Um, Sally Fields had had an interesting perform career like that as well, sure. right? Like she went from Gidget, and then Gidget all of a sudden trauma, she's doing so. Norma Ray and. Right places in the heart and, you know, she's showing you like, I'm a really solid dramatic actress too. I don't know that we necessarily value that in this industry so much. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating that you look at people like a Sandra Bullock, for example, who it's when they go dramatic that then they win an award. Um, You know, it's somehow we don't value comedic timing and, and those yeah. comedic chops as much as the dramatic work. Or to be fair, are, having,
1: having, for reasons far too complex to go into, watched several Gidgets, not Gidgets, sorry, Flying nuns in the last few years, it, she wasn't showing her, <laughs> her, true, her, her true full range on that show. It's uh... But sometimes, like, like, but
0: I think what's so lovely is like, you yeah. know, as a, you know, coming in, whether you're a writer, director, producer, to be able to just see something in a performer. Yeah. You know, to know, like, ah, there's something deeper there. Even yeah. if it's just a pop in a scene. Yeah. Where you see enough to know yep. that person absolutely, you know, they just have to be given the right material.
1: What else I love, I just absolutely love when somebody does that too, when they break your perceived character, you know? Yeah. And, um, uh, I don't know, I always, you know, Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West playing, I mean, he shoots a child on screen. This is like, mm-hmm. he was... What's the, what's the male version of America's sweetheart, you know? But whatever, he was like, you know, America's dad. He's America's sweetheart. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but here he is doing this awful stuff. I always love that. I'm always a sucker for that. Yeah, um, Yeah, I, I was, what was the, um, oh God, the cocaine blow where uh, Paul Rubens. Mm. You, know, you know, you're like, holy shit, that's Pee Wee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like, who knew? Um, the third <laughs> film on my list, which I always to me is a companion piece to ordinary people, maybe because it won the Oscar for Best Picture the Year Before, um, is Benton's Kramer versus Kramer. Ah, uh, yep. Nineteen seventy nine. And it's I would argue Hoffman at his best. Um Hoffman and, and obviously, you know, the Queen, Meryl yes. Streep. Yeah, she ain't bad. <laughs> um
1: yeah. It's it, but that film, whew I'm, it's funny we have we have um, uh, uh, I think it's one of the ways we sort of make make sure people don't think we're full of shit when we talk about how much we love something like Pose or what have you. Joe and I I would I would be would be wrong of me to that Joe Joe and I have, have bagged on that movie several times. So. <laughs> I but why? Um, Tell me why. I I found at the time having lived as a child through a divorce of parents and and then as an adult having having gone through it too, mm. um, although not with a kid. Uh, it just, it just felt like a kind of glib Hollywood approach to the subject, which is, I love Benton. Um, I mean, obviously, and it's interesting when you say that he's he actually, uh, I would argue Bonnie and Clyde is a movie about family too. And, oh, and no, absolutely. And, and yeah. And then I don't, have you ever seen the late show? Um, it's a Art Carney and Lily Tomlin. It's no, I'm absolute, not. oh my God. You, it's a hardboiled detective movie. It's set in the seventies. Um, Art Carney plays a, an aging, you know, he 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 was Bogart in the 40s. He was Sam Spade. And now he's an old guy. And Lily Tomlin's this daffy new age mm. Hollywood uh, person who's hiring him to find her cat. And it turns into a real mystery. And it's really great. But it's about these two very disparate characters basically becoming a family, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was something about uh, Kramer that just, it just did not, it, it didn't ring true with me as both mm. as a kid and when I've seen it as an adult. And I remember having a kind of liberating conversation with Cronenberg when I worked with him, where he he maintains, and I I now agree, and I actually think I think we're both serious that um, uh, the Brood was the better movie about divorce that came out that year. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> it is very, and, and you know, obviously dealing with much more metaphorically, but it deals with sort of the real emotional violence of that in a way that I don't know, I don't know, mm. I I um uh, but obviously you know, beautifully made, and yeah, there's also uh, I think Joe was talking, I don't know, there's a scene in it that's out of focus you know what that, that no. is? Um, apparently Dustin Hoffman just gave just the take of a lifetime. Because I do agree with you. I think he's, they're both phenomenally. You yeah. can't knock any of the, um, but it was out of focus and Benton said, we have to do that again. And Hoffman goes, why? He goes, well, it was out of focus. He goes, I can't give it to you better than that. So it's in the film. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have to go revisit that. But, but no, I mean, honestly, it's been a long time, and and you in all sincerity, based on your affection for it, I, I, it may be time for me to go back and give it another <laughs> shot. Um, but it's...
0: Well, and, you know, it, again, I, I love your analysis of it, because here's the truth, right, is that we come into every... Our own
1: baggage. That's it, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like, we
0: come <laughs> into every piece of work that we interact with with our own backgrounds and our own stories and histories and experiences and so um you know for me at nine eight or nine whatever it was when I saw it for the first time again it was just it was that feeling of oh this is a story of a mom who actually did leave you know and I it wasn't hard for me to put myself in in Billy's shoes Mm -hmm. and to imagine like what shit show I would have had to deal with <laughs> if mom left, and I'm now having to live with my dad. Um, you know, like it just scary to me. So the movie yeah. resonated in a in, in sure. that way for and me. Again, at
1: nine, I can't even
0: imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and now I think a big part of the love for the film has, you know, I, I don't know that I've spent a lot of time really deconstructing the film because I will be honest. Here's the thing, I. There's something that happens after you study, you know, film or, yep. or screenwriting, or you know. And so, having come out of UCLA's MFA screenwriting program, I watch films now with a much more critical lens, particularly right. when it comes to structure and plotting. And uh, you know, like there are films that are not on this list that I absolutely love. That would also argue are family movies, but I didn't include them, like Flashdance, for example, sure. which I think Flashdance and i'm saying this with a lot of love and affection because i genuinely love this movie i watch it once a year but it's not a great script but no. the reality is you know <laughs> that but i love it right yeah. and so i think there are films that i love so much that i can switch that sure that off yeah. you know well, and i can just enjoy they, it they, for what they, it they is. got
1: you before you became what you are now i mean i've, I've found one of the things I, I struggle with and try very hard to do is is um uh trying to be stupid Mm. Um, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense of like I remember when um I always go to Sixth Sense and how many people are like, Oh, I saw that coming. And yeah, I, did not. Just, I didn't, and I didn't want to. And I'm sure if you had told me walking in there's a twist coming, I could probably have, but you would have ruined the film for me. You know, right. I love the fact that it worked on me and I love yeah, the fact that agreed. and I'm sure if I walked in going, okay, now I'm gonna sit here and and figure out what this movie's doing before it does it, I, I don't doubt you could have come to that because he does it beautifully, he plays fair. Well, and here's the mark Um, of a really beautiful
0: script as well, is that that's another film that I, because I love a rewatch. I'm like a perpetual rewatcher. Right? And that's one that I have I think I've seen six times, probably five or six times at this point. And every time it's just, there's something, it's like Memento is another film like that. That every time I go in, there's something new and I have like a a different um, takeaway from the story. There's something new that I discover about the script. It's, you know,
1: I just, I always go to the scene with his wife, which the first time you see it is a marriage falling apart and two people not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And the second time you see it, it's completely different. Yeah. Everything about it. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's an amazing piece of writing.
0: Shit, now that I'm thinking about it, that would have been a really good one to have on my list. That's number 11. That's 11. (laughs) I love, I genuinely
1: love The Sixth Sense. No, I love, yeah. And then, you know, the fun thing, it, it um yeah, there's a challenge if you're doing like your ten favorite family movies. Th- there is that thing. Like, I'm gonna put Godzilla on here, and I'm gonna make you agree with me. <laughs> <that. laughs> <laughs> I-
0: Can I tell you, for a while, on my list was Transformers, the animated film.
1: Oh, wow, really? Yeah. The Orson Welles one? From
0: 1980, yeah, <laughs> 1986. And I took it off the list because I was like, well, I was like, you know, I'm not sure. Why did I take it off the list? I don't know. But it's I not know. there now. <laughs> but it should be because that's another one that's probably as important in terms of my journey as a storyteller for as course. The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. Truly. The death of Optimus Prime scarred me. Okay. At six years old. Yeah. But it's also, it's, it really is, it's a family story, right? It's this team of this chosen family of robots coming together and saying, we're going to save the world. And I don't know. I just, I love seeing that forming right. of a group. Yeah. It's that, I don't know why. It just, it really turns me on.
1: Dirty dozen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, getting a team together.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the team.
1: One of my dad's is there, favorites is there. Yeah, well, yeah. it's everybody's dad's favorite. Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: All right. Number four on my list is Boys in the Hood. Oh, John Singleton. Wow. Yeah.
1: Nineteen
0: ninety one. I my uncle, um, my uncle Tommy, who's my mom's younger brother, um, he was really great about taking myself, my cousins, to the movies on weekends, and so. There are a lot of films that were released in the late 80s. Really, I would say probably until I went to college in like the late 90s um, that I'm fortunate enough to say, oh, I saw that in the theater, you know, because my uncle was a big one for like opening night or, Mm -hmm. you know, like Saturday matinee. Like we're going to to Whitestone cinemas in the Bronx, which sadly is now closed. And we're going to we're going to go see this movie. And so I remember summer of 91, I was 10 going on 11. We went to the film to the theater to see Boys in the Hood, and I still remember the thing that I so vividly recall is leaving the theater huh. at the end of the film after Ricky is killed, mm-hmm. um, and seeing all of these—I'm going to say—twenty-somethings, you know, um, just sobbing, yeah. sobbing over the death, and I and I had a very similar experience with Boys in the Hood that I had as a young boy with the color purple. And I actually got to tell John Singleton this three weeks before he died. because oh, we right. you were, did a, a panel with him. We were on the Hollywood yeah. Reporter Roundtable yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for drama showrunners. And in between, you know, setups, um, I told him, I you know, I have to tell you the story about what this film has meant to me and how it's impacted me as a storyteller. And what I said to him was, you know, like the color purple, that is one of the films, really one of only two, that I remember feeling like whatever I do with my life, and I certainly at that point did not know whether or not I was going to become a storyteller or a filmmaker, you know, showrunner, but I want to make people, I want to make audiences feel the way I just felt. Right. That being the the greatest takeaway. And once again, I think that the, the way that Boys in the Hood has impacted my storytelling Again, maybe more so than any other film on this list, was that Boys in the Hood is so fascinating that it was Singleton's first feature. He wrote and directed it. And you can tell, like, and I always feel this when I go back and I revisit that film, like, you can tell that he just had an I don't give a fuck attitude about what he was doing. And the reality is, that was the energy that I had with that first draft of Pose. To be completely honest, was like, I couldn't care less what you think what your opinion is. Like, I am just going to, I'm just going to throw down on the page and either you're going to be there and show up and react right. to it and right. respond
1: to it and love it as much as I do, or you're not. Yep.
0: And if you don't, that's okay. I don't care.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's funny. That Yeah. I was thinking that way. We started going down that road, I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. He's just,
0: there was just like an unabashed, like just like, it wasn't careless, but it was—it's was carefree. Carefree,
1: yeah. You know,
0: yep. just I'm just telling a story about my community. Yeah, I'm telling a story about my people. This is the reality, and I'm showing it to you, warts and all. Period. Yeah. That I love, and I and I hold. I, you know, goosebumps now thinking about it. But it's like I, that's what I want my work to always be. Yeah. You know, I don't want it to to. I don't want to. Um. Like a diamond, you know. Yeah. Like I don't want to have to like get rid of the
1: the rough
0: edges and the yeah. imperfections. Yeah. You know, like I don't need the the shiny veneer. I don't. I don't. Need I, I of always
1: that. think. I mean, obviously, I, you know, we we all love Kubrick, I'm sure. But I always there is that aspect of his filmmaking that always frustrates me, and it it got more so as he went along. Is that quest for perfection, which. Oh, it seemed to me to be the biggest mistake. You Mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, it's like, I don't want that. (laughs) No. I want the bumps. I want the warts, you know, I want the mistakes. And that's where the humanity sort of leaks out. What's the, um, oh, what's Leonard Cohen line? There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, that's an amazing film. And, and, uh, um, God, Fishburne, (laughs) Like incredible, the most yeah. incredible performer. Yeah, I I'm so I I, I do uh, I just finished working with him. I, I'm doing a, mm. a second season of an audio drama that I write about black gangsters mm-hmm. in the '40s and Fishburne's uh, one of the stars and producers. Ooh, and
0: let's uh, let's get that as a television show.
1: Uh, we'll talk off the air. It's, you don't want to <laughs> hear. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, he's he's just absolutely fucking amazing, and you just can't believe you're. Uh, One of those actors where, you know, no matter what, no matter if it's like a line that you struggled over for a month or just something you threw away and doesn't work, every time you hear his dialogue come out of your mouth, you're like, hey, that's good, who wrote it? (laughs) It's just, it's insane. But yeah, I love him in that film, and that speech about what is the liquor store at every corner, and it was was so straight up political, look at the camera and say something specific and real to an audience, and, and it works. And it was so timely.
0: Yeah sort of the last important point about that film is that, you know, I I think the thing I love so much about Boys in the Hood and I think the reason why it resonated so deeply with audiences was that it was released in 91 and we were coming right out of the 80s, which, don't get me wrong, like, I'm a kid of the 80s, I love the the decade, but the reality is, you know, I don't know that any era of cinema is as pointed as what we saw in the 1970s. You know, like, it was very clear that there was a a counterculture happening and that the work was really reflective of and yeah. speaking to what was happening politically in this country the 80s and was a reaction against that exactly yeah. that yeah. and i think his film really was kind of one of the first to come out of that decade that was like no this is what the fuck's going on right now this is what's yeah. happening in my I mean, I,
1: yeah there was obviously two years earlier you had you had to do the right thing but but that's, yes yeah that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's about absolutely it. Yeah, yeah that was that was in fact, yeah, because Singleton was the sort of first. I feel like I mean, there there were wonders, but that that was sort of you realized the door had been opened when when that film came out.
0: I would say also that there's a because I I agree. I think I'm, do the right thing is incredible. There's a, a grittiness though mm. to Boys in the Hood. Yeah, that that doesn't exist.
1: in yeah, in yeah. Do, no, the right do the right thing. Right Thing's just which also
0: is a beautiful
1: film. Yep. Um, yeah, but but you no, know, I I get it. I agree.
0: Yeah. Spike Lee actually was one of the people who really inspired me to finally make the decision to move to LA Yeah, because I, you know, growing up in the Bronx, like there were no models. Right. Right. So, you know, I didn't really make the decision to pursue a a career as a storyteller until I was 15. But prior to that point, it's like, who do I turn to? Who is doing the work? You know, who are folks who I can sort of have a connection to right that just didn't exist you know and, and so i think you had to find folks to to latch on to yeah. and yeah. spike was one of those people where i was like sure. oh he's from new york and he tells new york-based stories and so you know
1: yeah yeah I'll try to model
0: myself after him you know? yeah
1: which goes back to the thing we were talking about it's, it's you know i had no shortage of people i could look at for you know how to how to model what i was going to do it's like mm. you know give me give me there's 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 a thousand idiots who look just like me who've done this <laughs> i'll just be like one of them <clears throat> you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or maybe five, because there are not that many tall people
0: in Hollywood. Oh, that's true. Well, thank you for recognizing my
1: struggle, Stephen. It's, uh, no problem. Uh, you have a much better time on airplanes than I do. That's all I'm going to say. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm
0: sure. Um, all right. Next film on my list is a controversial choice because of the writer and director, but uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. Ah, okay.
1: 86. I, was it... Um, Oh, God. Uh, Bill Hader was on and and we talked about Woody Allen, and, and he said, you know, he had a great line. And I'm, you know, my sister in law has a great line. I don't know if it's hers or not, but the, the work is the work, the jerk is the jerk. Uh, Bill Hader said, Hey, we didn't know at the time. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like you can't go back and revise your emotional response to a movie because you found out something about the person who made it later than there, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, yes, no, we're, 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 uh, Go, oh, man.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, well, I don't want to talk about him, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, the way that I came to this film is I am a huge, huge fan, bordering on obsessed. She's my favorite actress of all time. Love Barbara Hershey.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Love, That's, and I yeah. will
0: tell you why. 1989? Okay. Eight or eight or 89, when Beaches is released, um... Mom has it on cassette tape and I watch it and I know there was all this controversy around her her lips in that film but oh, that's I That's right
1: cuz that's when she had first gotten yeah, the, the collagen
0: the collagen to make them look right. better, cuz you know in her mind that was beauty and um anyway but I just I thought she was the most beautiful thing on the planet and I was like obsessed with her and, and so after that I just wanted to see everything she'd ever done and so I spent like this solid like 2 years like going back and watching you know, The Entity, and, you know, Tin Men and, you Fox know. Boxcar Bertha. Boxcar Bertha, and with 60 Get Egg Roll, and just, like, just the deep dive into all <laughs> yeah. things Barbara. Um, anyway, right. so I'm in love with her. And so the, so I finally, I landed on on Hannah and her sisters, and once again, was like, oh, I, I love this story, because it's just a movie about a family. Right. And the thing that I really loved about this story so much was that here was a family that was dealing with some very real issues, right? You know, like Lee, the character Barbara plays, is, um, you know, recovering alcoholic. And, you know, you've got um, Diane Weiss plays Holly. Okay. um, Who's, you know, like an addict and, you know, everyone's messy, um, but they still love each other. Like they're still a family. And so we go through a year in the life from one Thanksgiving to the next. And they're all still there. They're all still with one another. Yeah, and there was something good. about the message of the power of family, even in the face of all of this dysfunction. Even when they hate each other. Even right. when they yeah. hate each other. That yeah. I re- that it's like blood is thicker than water, and we're here for one another, and that I so thoroughly loved.
1: Is it, what's the... Um... God, they, they all start, oh, no, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. There's a scene where the uncle shows up at Thanksgiving and then just turns around and walks out because he's so <laughs> angry about something. But, but you know he'll be back next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But that was a great one. I just, you know, there's something about that. Uh, there's some really great scenes in that film, too. Like, I love the scene where uh, it's Diane Wiest and, and uh, Mia Farrow and Barbara Hershey all sitting, having lunch together. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to scenes that I will rewatch, right. that's a scene that I watch where he just has the camera behind them and he's circling mm-hmm. as they're sitting at this table having lunch. And all of them are, they're, they're, none of them are talking about what they really want to be talking about. Right. Like everyone's talking in, in code Around and there's it. a lot mm-hmm. of subtext and it's just one of those like genius scenes where that's one of those scenes to me that's aspirational. Oh, like okay. I want to write a scene that, that that's
1: that good. At some point, fantastic. Uh, it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ileana Douglas was on a while back and talked about those. Um, which, which I mean, I, I've worked production many years before I started writing, and it never dawned on me. But, but um, of course, one of the reasons you do that around a table is is because doing coverage in those scenes and then having to match it is such a bear that mm-hmm. it's uh, it's uh, it always makes more sense to just swing the camera around the table. I will say that but, scene
0: though inspired something I did in Pose. Oh, really? A choice that I made when I directed which which uh... um episode 8 of season uh-huh. 2 titled Revelations um and there's a scene is that the, the funeral no it's the scene where um Pray Tell and Ricky sleep together oh okay yeah and so in the diner scene when Pretell comes in and is talking to the council uh-huh. that was one where you know obviously I don't have my my camera's not yeah. roving around around this uh well, you can't diner table right yeah right. impossible to do that but Um, In terms of the choreography of it, while writing the scene, I was like, oh, I could have this sort of revolving nature as well, depending on, A, where I position where the actors are sitting, and then when they're speaking. And so there really
1: is a lot of thought that went into, you know. That's right. Yeah, that's a great scene. They're all, he's telling them. He comes in not wanting to tell them that he's got this young man now mm-hmm. and he can't help himself. Yeah, it's a, yeah. a lovely scene. But that was inspired by that Oh, scene. fantastic. And her sisters. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's why we're here. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. <laughs> no, it's, it's really one of those interesting things where, where, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand how uh, evolutionary and organic this art form is. How A leads to B leads to C and why it's so important to expose yourself to the stuff that came before you know well
0: and as a side note to that can I say because this is another film that's not on this list but I just rewatched it a week ago because it's one of my favorite films Um, and I have seen it more than 12 times at this point but I don't know that it ever really that I had as deep of a a reaction to it as I did this past viewing two weeks ago and the film is Working Girl oh which I love I love Working Girl with Mike Nichols I think you know, uh, the cast is great, especially I think Melanie Griffith is so perfect in that role and yeah. in that film. And the takeaway that I had on this viewing, and I spent a lot of time unpacking it with my partner, I was like I never realized that until this moment, was how d- deeply connected I feel to um, Tess's journey and specifically to her ambition in that film. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because when I was 15, it was right before my sophomore year of high school, um, I was part of a a pre-collegiate program through my high school. And they, you know, sent us to this college for several days and we took college level courses. And um, at the end of that time, we were given superlatives and mine was, by any means necessary, the most ambitious. Oh, Which at the time didn't really mean anything to me, mm-hmm. but watching or rewatching, Working Girl two weeks ago for the first you know for the whatever quintillionth time, um, I just I walked away like wow, Tess was really ambitious, and I thought I wonder how how much her ambition impacted my own ambition. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> the first time I ever saw that film was I was I think I was maybe nine or ten. Right. Um, And again, it's a film that I've watched literally every single year since then because I just, I love going on that journey with her. Um, And as another person who also grew up in the city, who clearly did not have, who had a lack of access to resources and had to really fight and claw her way to get to where she wants to be by the end of the film. Clearly that impacted me in a very deeper than I even realized because now at 38, nearing 39, I was like, holy shit. Like I'm in so many ways, I am Tess now.
1: What if you hadn't seen that movie?
0: Who knows? It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> Thank you, Mike Nichols. Thank you, Melanie Griffith. Yeah. Um, anyhow, so the next film on my list is uh, written and directed by Mike Lee, and it's ah. Secrets and Lies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Um, which is such a beautiful, beautiful, like, jewel box of a film. Yeah. Just, I love this movie so much. It's such I, a family. yeah it's incredible and I think what I love so much about this film is that um, aside from the performances I think Brenda Blethin and and Marianne Jean-Baptiste are incredible and if you've never seen this film you must watch it Yeah, Um, because I think that was the year that that was the year that the English patient won best picture and I think that film just sort of just dominated the conversation I think there were other films that were as good if not better that just sort of yeah, weren't part of the conversation, yeah, okay. and this is one of them. Um, I've never understood the uh,
1: yeah, the English Patient thing.
0: It's... <laughs> I, it's, it's a film I really enjoy. Yeah. I think Juliet Binoche, I think is
1: yeah. No, you stunning. can't follow the oranges. It's just kind
0: of but but yeah. No, Secrets and Lies was yeah. But Secrets and Lies is just one that like it just it it sticks with you. Like it mm-hmm. just it kind of burrows into your d- skin, and it just it, it lives with you for a really long time. Yeah. It's a really
1: yeah. hard film to shake off. Yeah, yeah. You know? and it's just beautiful watching the relationship between those two sort of evolve in its strange little way because it's very specific. Very. Um, which is one of the things I love about him. I mean, his whole process is, it's unique. I mean, nobody else has ever been able to pull it off, but, but you end up creating these characters that are really specific and distinct, and yet you're just, you're completely immersed in their lives. Um, and it's so complicated because, you know,
0: you have this white woman who birthed a black daughter, um, who she's now keeping secret from her family, you know, and she has her own complications and, and reasons for why why she didn't want this daughter to to be known and why she gave her up yeah. for adoption. And it's just, but once again, I think the thing that I love so much, and, and I think it's it's very similar to the reaction I had to to Hannah, which is at the end of the film, spoiler for people who haven't watched it, um, there's still there's still a family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like they they love each other and they support each other. And I, I I that's one film that again, going back to what I was saying about the it, it sort of it burrows into your skin. It's like I still think about um Hortense and what her relationship is like with her sister now Mm. you know because you kind of leave the film just as they're finally sort of deciding connect yeah that we're going to allow ourselves to connect and have a relationship as two sisters who don't look anything like one another and i i am constantly thinking about those two people those two women and like what is their relationship like now you know and and you know how did they continue to sort of evolve and grow and change as a
1: family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a function of his movies too, is those characters are so fleshed out that you, their stories aren't done. Yeah. You just just leave them. Yeah. That's interesting. And again, I
0: think similar to other pieces we've discussed, I think Secrets and Lies is another one that has deeply impacted my approach to narrative with Pose. Because I often think about, you know, how do you leave an audience wanting more, Mm -hmm. more than anything, right? So that when when we finally decide that we are not going to be telling this story anymore, those characters, they don't cease to exist. Right. You know, like if they're real for you, then they still live. And so yeah. how do you create a portrait of a life and one that resonates so deeply that you continue to think about this person even after the last credit rolls? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or just simple. Like I was so happy when Angel and... Um... No, I'm sorry. What's up? boyfriend? Yes, yeah. when, when they come back in the in the last episode of the season, I was like, I, I I've been wanting to know what they're. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> nice, it's nice to know they're doing all right. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you like because we care. were wondering, you know, as mm-hmm. we were watching. Yeah, uh, uh, they don't just leave the camera. They're like, <laughs> they're out there somewhere. <laughs> they're on the world. They're
0: doing things. Yes, they're doing things. Um, okay, so number seven is controversial uh-huh. um, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's American Beauty.
1: Oh, oh, that you know. So yeah, you were talking earlier about movies that that you know you you tie into for personal yeah. reasons too. But yeah, that that movie came out the year after I got divorced, and there were so many weird synchronicities. Um, mm. I'm not even going to begin to compare myself to Spacey's character in the film, but but it was so. I mean, just weird stuff too. Like we had two guys who lived across the street, two the gay couple named Jim. Both named Jim. There's two gay guys named Jim in that movie. We <laughs> had the drapes that they have in there. I mean, it was just crazy little synchronicities like that. That um, so you were saying is that like Alan Ball was stalking you? It, weirdly, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that well, yeah. <laughs> By the way, finding out that Alan Ball was 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 a gay man was really interesting to me because that that movie taps into. I was like, when I found that out, I was like, wow, can you really? Because it's it's there's a lot of, you know, deep dark straight neuroses in that movie. So he he was <laughs> paying attention. Um, But, yeah, I loved that film. I had a powerful emotional reaction to it. And I haven't gone back since because enough people have said enough things that make enough sense that I'm afraid if I do, it might. Like, I want to, but what if being away from all the things that made me love it as long as I have changes my perception in a negative. I don't want that. I want mm-hmm. the version I loved. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know, but uh yeah, no, it's a, it's a really I am I'm, I'm with you on that film.
0: <laughs> I haven't I haven't re- re-watched it uh in quite some time. It's it's definitely been more than I would say like 7 or 8 years since I last viewed it, but the first time that I saw it, I so I rented it from a video store where uh, I had it for two two nights, and I watched it four times in a row the first day, and then I watched it two more times on the second day before taking it back. Um, I think I've watched that movie more times than I well, care to admit. Um, I watched it a lot, and it just... I'm not sure. It's its one of those things where I would need to really, maybe in therapy, unpack why it so deeply <laughs> resonated with me. Um the The one moment for me that I, it, this is gonna sound really strange, especially being someone who identifies as queer. But the character that I feel the most connected or felt the most connected to was um Carolyn Annette Benning's character. Oh. and there were a couple of moments in the film for me that I, whenever I see the film just Slay me. One of them is when she's in the car after he, um, I'm forgetting the, what's his name, uh, yeah, no, no, not Spacey's character. Oh, the oh, dude no, the, she's the, sleeping the with, the
1: boyfriend. Shit. Um, I don't remember
0: the character's name, but know. you know, he basically tells yes. her, like, we can't do this anymore, yeah. and she's in the car and she just starts s- screaming, she's just yelping. Yeah. Um, and then the other scene for me is after uh, Spacey is killed in the film, and she walks into the bedroom and she just falls into his clothes yeah
1: that's incredible
0: there's a william carlos williams poem that i really love um where uh the narrator of that poem is talking about her husband dying and she talks about melting into the into a flower bed Mm. that there's something about that image that makes me think of that moment with annette benning just falling into his clothes in the closet yeah Upon seeing him, obviously, um, seeing his body, and I,
1: just kills me every time. Well, it just—it's—it's it's one of those things that the first time you see it, I had not seen that reaction to grief in a film before or in life, but it makes such exquisite sense because, of course, you know, it smells like them. It's—it's it's like you close your eyes in your loved one's closet, and you—it smells like them, you know. Um and it it just made such powerful emotional sense that yeah. that it just yeah, yeah knocks you for a loop.
0: The film makes me think of I don't know why, but whenever I think of American Beauty, I, I always immediately go to poetry. Like those seem to be the the references that I that it the well, yeah, no, for me. This,
1: yeah, I mean the bag and the the dream sequences of her with the roses are all That's very true. There's, a, there's a lot of poetry there in, is in a the lot film. Visual poetry visual poetry, yeah. yeah. But yeah. there's um,
0: Langston Hughes when he talks about A Dream Deferred. Uh, yes. And that's... There's another... there's a, That's what I think about with all of those characters, with Lester and with Carolyn and with the daughter. Um, and even with the the boyfriend, what's his name, Ricky. Um, that these are all people who just... I guess in a different way than Tess and Working Girl, but are, are ambitious and they have dreams and you know that none of them are going to actually ever see those dreams come to fruition. Yeah. That is so fucking heartbreaking to me about that movie. Maybe that's why it so deeply resonated yeah. with me because I think as someone who has always been a dreamer. Mm-hmm. And especially growing up in poor and in housing projects, like that's kind of the only thing that you have your dreams because you don't have to pay for them and you don't have to make apologies for them. And I think there is something for me as a especially as like a as a person of color living in this world to see white people have dreams and yeah. not have those things come yeah. to, to fruition. Happen
1: to us. <laughs> you know,
0: and they're well to do <laughs> yep. and they're living yep. in suburbia and, and for all intents and purposes, they have everything that they that the world has deemed they can have, yeah. it just it's like, whew, so what do the rest of us have then? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just it. That was a real that was stark, stark. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's reality. it's a
1: moment. You know, the moment you realize that uh, that uh, you know even Paris Hilton has pain, is yeah. uh, <laughs> frightening and humbling, and yet somehow connects us all a little bit more. I think, yeah. but but yeah, yeah, exactly. Those people have everything, and yet. And, and yet nothing, nothing nothing yeah and yet uh, nothing
0: and i think that that's again you see that the way that it impacts story on pose once again you know yeah. because where well, you have all these people who literally have nothing have nothing and yet everything and
1: they have everything yeah it's kind of the opposite in, yeah in a, in a in a plausible way because i am i am the i i despise sentimentality and somehow on a show that is as forgive my shorthand, as weepy as Pose is, you avoid sentimentality constantly. It's it's astonishing. It's, it's um, tricky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, but it's also probably, it probably, my, my sense, especially not talking to you, is that it's it's just a natural state. It's like, you don't no. strike me as someone deeply, you know, into sentiment. At as all. much as, yeah. yeah.
0: No, I but, think it, it's, it, it has to be earned. Yeah. yeah. A, and B, I think it's just, is, is it naturally part of, because here's the truth, I think, especially just in terms of talking about our, the, writing and the construction of pose, like we don't, and I as a storyteller, it's not insert emotion here. Right. I think it's just this is just what the journey is. Yeah. And if you happen to be moved by it, great. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um next film on my list is one that I fucking love. And it's uh in the bedroom.
1: Oh, okay. It's hot field. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm I'm God, I all I remember this is terrible. This is why we're, you know. So half-assed sometimes. I, I remember really enjoying it. And that's about... <laughs> mm-hmm. But that was what, like 2001? 2001. 2001, okay. 2001. All right, so I'm, I'm allowed to have a vague memory of it. And again, it's one of those films where
0: if, if I'm procrastinating, let's pull up, you know, Sissy Spacek and uh, Tom Wilkinson screaming at one another. That's yeah, God. <laughs> and yes. Throwing dishes yes. and, you know. Yes. But I, the thing about that film that I love so much, and I, again, I don't know that it's impacted pose necessarily but i think it definitely it's another one of those like burrows under your skin kind of stories and i know at some point i will see the impact and the influence of in the bedroom in my storytelling yeah, yeah. is that that's it's the one family drama that i've seen where at the end of the film there was true ambivalence for the audience because if you recall and again spoiler for people who who haven't seen it um Uh, Tom Wilkinson's character goes off and he uh, basically kidnaps the gentleman who is responsible for killing his son. And then he shoots him and then his best friend comes and helps him to to hide, you know, bury the body. And then the film ends with this like heartbreaking image of him just kind of rolling back in bed. And you know that uh, his wife, played by Sissy Spacek, knows what he did. And they have no remorse over that choice. And then in so many ways, uh, at least this was a takeaway for me, you know that this family, A, they'll never be the same again. That they right. will not really ever truly recover from the death of this, their only son. Um, and that that murder of, that, of, of their son's killer is truly not going to bring them any solace. Right. That everything is going to remain exactly as it has been since their son's death. Yeah. that just shatters me every time i see this movie every single time but that ambivalence is one that i've talked with people quite a bit about I has been a lot of time unpacking that because i think you know there's um you fall on one side of the sword or the other you yeah. know when it comes to this movie and it's either you agree with the choice that he made to kill his his son's murderer or you don't right um, well, you can and also, just, you and can it, also,
1: yeah, no, I, I'm remembering that well now. But the the um, you're also left with something that I think is important um, that that you're left with something to ponder as you walk out, you know. And it's it's where do you come out, and is it um, we, we, history of violence? We dealt with that in the last, mm-hmm. you know, the very end of the movie, where um, sort of a running joke with David and I me, mean, just the, the pagination of the script had worked out. Uh, I'd I'd thrown this thing in at the end because we were concerned the studio wouldn't let us do the ending. And I had them sitting at the table looking at each other and sort of wrote the ambivalence into it. And then I dropped a paragraph and I wrote, but there's hope. And it just worked out that But There's Hope ended up on the last page all by itself and it became this running mm. joke with David. I was like, uh, how are you going to shoot page 86? And he would say, I'm not. And and to this day, it was like, it was one of those things where I think we both disagree on, on where the family goes next. But the point is, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's about taking you to that place where now you're left to ask the question and exactly. you're left to engage in, in dialogue with the film. You know, what does it mean to you? What are you saying? You know, is it hopeless? Is it not hopeless? It's, it's... Um, and
0: that is how you write an Oscar-nominated screenplay. Yay! <laughs> hey.
1: um, uh, no, but you know, and it, 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 I'll tell you this on a, on a cheap level too. Like if you're out there studying screenwriting one-on-one, leaving your movie with a question, even if it's not a particularly good question... Is is a great way to make sure the audience talks about it for at least five minutes after they've seen it. <laughs> Absolutely, Absolutely. <laughs> I always think about that with with do the right thing, which we're still talking about the ending in that film, mm-hmm. and and I mean it's a perfect ending for the movie, but it's also a brilliant way of ensuring that the audience will be wrestling with that for for you know, well at
0: least what you've done, what what in the bedroom does, and I think what all really great cinema does in terms of the the question you're asking is that it doesn't take the audience for granted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It very specifically just says, this is just the truth and you have to make meaning of it.
1: Yeah. Right. I don't
0: have to tell you how to make meaning. Right.
1: You do, do that think, on but your you, own. You have to have your own, I think. That I mean, you clearly do with, with pose. Your own perspective, a, you mean? Yeah, you know your own truth. And oh, yeah. but you have to then find a way to tell the story in a way that allows the audience to sometimes at at the risk of of getting the completely wrong response, you know, getting the wrong answer from something. You have to give them room to walk away with. Sure.
0: But I think there's a difference between having having your own truth and then inserting that into the narrative. Yeah. Because I think that there are truths that, and I'm sure you you will agree with this, like there are truths that your characters hold that aren't necessarily your own personal right. truths, yep. but they're there, yeah, and they have to be there because yeah. it's that's that's the character that you've constructed. Yeah. Um, Chris Martin of uh, the lead singer of Coldplay said something that I think is really lovely about music, which is, uh, you know, he was like, I don't put the lyrics to the songs in the liner notes for the albums because I want You to decide what I'm saying, right? You know, and so sometimes you may hear these lyrics in a completely different way, and that's valid, sure, that's as real as what I actually decided it was going to be. And saying,
1: Excuse me while I kiss this guy, (laughs) (laughs) I heard that for years, and I was like, kind of ahead of his time. Uh, Um, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, of course, there's there's two arguments to be made there, and they're both. They're both valid. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, you know, one of the REM was famous for that for years. Like no one knew what the hell they were singing about, but you love them. Yeah. You know, and and uh uh yeah, but I guess that's what I'm saying is, is as long as you are are telling your truth and consistent, um that's gonna come through even to people who are reading something else entirely from it. I think mm-hmm. there's an integrity to the work that um they now have to respond to. Uh, even if they take something completely different away. Which is- but also
0: I think because you mentioned the the for the writers who are listening, especially for the nascent writers, I think like sometimes there will be truths that are there that you don't necessarily, you don't agree with that truth, but that that moment still needs to yeah. exist and you still need to honor it. And I think like my episode is, again, is a really good example of that because I don't know that I completely walked into it feeling like, Ricky and Praytel sleeping together is the right decision. Right. You know, like I have a lot of opinions and and maybe some judgment about that choice. And yet, that in the moment is the decision Pray is making. No, it seems completely
1: in character. It seems completely gray is a moral mm-hmm. choice and your actors bring something to it that is their own perception of it and, and it's all yeah it all seems very real which yeah. is why that fight afterwards and now we're getting into the show too much but but uh <laughs> but yeah yeah absolutely. and you just you just have to honor the moment
0: regardless yeah. of where you yourself are locating well
1: there's also the fun thing too of, of a lot of times too if, if you're tapped into something you might be telling truth about yourself you don't want to particularly i don't know one, one of my favorite movies and it just it Really divisive and it really fucks people up is uh, Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, mm. which I think is and and I think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it matters what the intent is, but I think a lot of what makes it a masterpiece is unintentional. I think it's him tapping a vein and going deeper than even he thinks he's going. And I understand every argument for why people think it's appalling and, and all the rest of that, but he is he is showing us something about his uh, his ego, the the male ego, the male psyche that is so raw. And so yeah. personal. I'm not even sure he's aware of how much of it he's showing, you know, which makes that film incredibly powerful and incredibly disturbing. To revisit that, yeah, it, it will fuck you up. <laughs> it's it's not a happy movie. <clears throat> no,
0: that's how I feel about Requiem for a Dream.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I I was not a fan of that. Somehow no. I mean, people love it. I I just, but yeah, but it but it was it was an attempt to go somewhere. Really? Oh, you're saying sorry. You're saying you think he was it was an overshare. If In some happens. ways, really? it's okay. just It like, woof, Yeah, just yeah. Doesn't leave you, you feeling to, very did good. You want to take me there? Was that your intent? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Sometimes, like, are you ready to be taken there? Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah.
1: And then there's that.
0: <laughs> um Okay, there's two more on my list. Okay. One, the the second to last is is a documentary, Um and it's capturing the Freedmen's. Sure. Yeah. Andrew yeah. Jarecki. Absolutely. It's a really just a great documentary. Just really really delicately made and um you know the the thing about this film it's, it's complicated cuz obviously it's about a man and his son who plead guilty to child sexual abuse um so it's not it's not a feel good <laughs> doc um but what what's so fascinating to me i've always been a lover of stories that are not telling you why something happened, Mm -hmm. but how it happened. Um, I'm much more interested as a storyteller Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of an event. Mm -hmm. You know, like I... What's the emotional fallout? Like, you know, the people who are left behind, how are they dealing? I think more often than not in cinema, we tend to focus on the event. You know, it's like, let's tell the movie about 9-11 and so now we're going to focus on the buildings being hit and the buildings coming down and it's like, I'm much more interested in like the families who are now left to put the pieces back together, you know? Um, And there was something about Capturing the Freemans for me that it was the first time in film, and it's a doc, so it's all real, that we're seeing the true dissolution of a family, you know? That to me was just so incredibly heartbreaking. And it's... And again, whether you believe that he is responsible for those heinous acts or not, um, you know, the reality is that it's just a really um, heartbreaking portrait of a family that has just completely fallen apart. And one that you know will never come back together again.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just, that's...
1: Yeah. So anyway, yeah. No, it's a very, it's, and, 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 and sort of in a weird way, because even, even uh, ordinary people, there, there is, a unit survives, even though the family is kind of destroyed, but um, this is sort of probably the darkest movie you've come across so far on your list that you've given <laughs> us. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, they're all a little
0: dark, but this one's like yeah, this was one's really dark. Because dark. there's yeah. even,
1: even American Beauty with him ending the dead and all that. There's, there's still some, there's there's some beauty in that. There's there's, some, a, there's hope. There's hope. There is hope. Page 86. Yes. Um, yeah, there's hope. Whereas, yeah, capture the Freemans is... is no, no. There's there's no hope. There's no hope. Yeah. There's no hope. It's yeah. it's bleak. Are we going out on something a little more? Not really. Um, <laughs> we could change the order of
0: the editing done. I have no. I have no. None of these films are like. And at the end, everything's great. Well, it's color purple. I started off strong. It was, yeah, there's a happy happy ending there. Um, seven brides
1: for seven brothers. Right? Come on, it's got to be. Secrets and Lies has a happy ending too. Oh, Secrets and Lies. Is, yeah, some of these
0: are actually very. So good. there's some happy endings. Um, no, the last film is Rabbit Hole.
1: Oh, um, um uh, yeah. uh,
0: directed by John Cameron Mitchell yes, from yes, the, after... um, David Lindsay, a Bear yeah. play.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's pretty grim.
0: And this one is, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart dealing with the death of their son. And, yeah. and then, you know, her s- secret, uh, relationship or friendship, um, with the young man who, who hit her son in the car and, yeah. and killed him, you know, was, play, um, played by Miles Teller. I saying, yeah,
1: that's right, Miles Teller. Which yeah. I think
0: was his first film. I, definitely
1: the first thing I'd seen him in, it, at least, yeah. that. that um, yeah.
0: But this was another one that, similar to In the Bedroom, um, you know, if I'm procrastinating, I'm going to go and look up, you know, <laughs> <seems> <laughs> clips of Nicole Kidman, like, you know, just screaming okay. at Aaron Eckhart. But it, this is another film that I... There are a couple of scenes in this film that I really love that I think are, they transcend just talking about loss or motherhood or family. Um, Oh, and that was one thing that I was remiss in saying, that a lot of these stories have motherhood as a theme embedded Mm -hmm. in them. And I don't think that it's by chance that Poe's very obviously is about motherhood.
1: Yeah, that's the thing the 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 women and um uh, some of the central characters in the thing are are that's an interesting dynamic. Can you talk about that for one second because that, that was an interesting world I knew nothing about even though I mean I'd seen Paris is burning and I think that touches on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But but that notion of these built families that are literally in which uh, these transgender women set themselves up as mothers to mm-hmm. this kind of disparate group of of people and homeless kids and everything and it's um it's a lovely dynamic.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, the balls represent chosen family and these women who come in to serve as surrogate parents to these young LGBTQ people who have been discarded by the world, by their families, um, are stepping in to to serve a role, you know, to be a a source of love and support, you know, um, for these young people. and. And that still happens or today. Generally
1: running from a broken family. Yeah, the nature of yeah,
0: and it's just it's just it's it's a safety net. Is yeah. really what it comes down to. Yeah, you know. But it's so fascinating because you have these women, more often than not, trans women who are also really young. Mm. You know, and so they're having to step into these parental roles. when yeah. many of them really had never been parented themselves. Yeah, you know. So it's it's just a fascinating dynamic, but it's. I would argue, in some ways, poses about motherhood more than it is really about family. Frankly, sure. you know that it's it's an investigation into family, but the show really is about motherhood, and um, it's not by chance that, like in our first season, mother was in two of our eight episode titles. You know, it's it's really what the show is about, and and a lot of the films on my family list are about mothering and of, motherhood yeah, yeah. and rabbit hole. Through and through is absolutely that you know. There's that beautiful scene between Nicole Kidman and uh, Diane Weist discussing loss, the loss of a child as a mother. And Diane Weist talks about you know um, bricks or rocks being in your pocket, and that losing a child feels like sort of being brought down, Mm. you know, into the water with these bricks in your pocket and. You're fighting against the current and the tide to to get back up to to shore, and it's just it's heartbreaking and i you know I, I that's another film that um I just think it's it's so beautiful and so so delicately told yeah and and the performances I think are pitch perfect, but um you know I think that that's one that really has impacted me. I say you know like the last the last two in the bedroom and Rabbit hole. Have um, really impacted my approach to telling stories about motherhood and Mother Ring. Because it's an experience hmm. that I know I'll never have. But because they're, they're both movies about
1: tremendous loss, too, which is.
0: You know, and, and how do you pick up the pieces? And I think specifically the, the thing that I'm so fascinated by in those two films um, is just the immense duty and responsibility that we put on women and specifically on mothers, you know, to hold the family together, yeah. um, you know, to to pick up all of the pieces. It's the thing that I find so fascinating about ordinary people, right? Like mm-hmm. here's a mother who just couldn't yeah, do yeah, it. who doesn't. Yeah. She literally couldn't do it, didn't yeah. want to do it and left. Um, but more often than not, you know, that is the responsibility that falls on the mom. And, and I think in the bedroom and Rabbit Hole are two films that really just do a really beautiful job of showing just how much work, emotional work, and labor it takes to do that, yeah, yeah. you know, and from two different perspectives, because you have a mom who lost her son because he was both lost their sons in really tragic ways, but one, it's that your son was killed by someone and he was older, and then here you have this child that was that was lost, um, you know and and then what's the relationship with the father who obviously also, parented and had a relationship with their sons, right. but didn't carry that child for nine months, um, and had a different relationship to to this to this person. And I just, I'm really fascinated by those investigations, and yeah, yeah. Um, I'm always looking at ways to then explore that in my own work. And obviously, it's it's interesting to explore that notion of motherhood and loss, yeah, in which we do do on um, pose very much. Um, but in this whole new way, right? Yep. Which is that you have these trans women who are se- stepping in to serve as surrogate mothers right. to these young people.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's a beautiful, uh, sort of ties it all together. And it dawns, I mean, not to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, but, but weirdly Terminator sort of fits in with all that. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that I think of it. No, but absolutely. There are, <laughs> there, are, there are films that
0: I absolutely, if you had asked me to come in here with a list of like my 10 favorites, movies that are not on this list that absolutely would have been on them Terminator being one Aliens being another I think Ripley if I was giving you a list of like my 10 films that are clearly about mothers and mothering and motherhood yeah. Aliens would have been movies. on it <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know Ripley and, and you know sure. played beautifully by Sigourney Weaver it yeah. is one of those films that I again I revisit often and yeah. I think you know you look at her relationship to Newt yeah you look at the the relationship that she really has to all of the that battalion that she's working yeah. with, yeah. that final oh battle.
1: God. It's the family from Pose. Yeah, I thought of it. <laughs> no,
0: really. I think like you, if you really want to deconstruct it, you will see how. So, these no, yeah, I wonder have been if you Paxton. do like a
1: one to one corollary. So who's Bill Paxton on Pose? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> clearly Pray Towel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you. Man. This has been a blast. Yeah, this was and so much fun. Just a great excuse to talk movies with someone whose work I admire and enjoy. Thanks. Um, uh, I know. I know the show's doing well. I know that. Um, I know at least enough of who our audience is. That some of you aren't watching it, so please do. It's fucking great. Um, it really is, and and it does everything that at least I want out of uh, good TV, good art, good movies. It's um, uh, it put me. It you know you put me in shoes I don't own and let me walk around in them. And uh oh, that's great. Um, it's just beautiful. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. The official podcast of trailersfromhell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made